we have looked at the fact that even though our message is one of peace, yet the God who offers peace to all men is also the great avenger of blood and the holy warrior, the one who made war on Jesus Christ in our stead, but those who reject Jesus Christ, he will make war on forever in hell. And based on this, we've seen that Christianity is not a pacifistic religion, although we are a religion which offers peace, the religion of peace to all men. We've seen that God promises to train us as warriors, and now we need to look at some of the principles of warfare. We'll begin a consideration today of five fundamental principles of warfare. And we'll make some comments on how the United States has applied these and hopefully also some things that we as individual Christians living in Tyler and other places can use. The five principles are these. The first is the principle of crushing the head of the enemy. The second is the principle of offering peace to the enemy. The third principle is that the land and civilians are not to be warred against. The fourth is that all men are required to participate in war. In other words, the principle of a universal draft, which the Bible teaches. And the fifth is the principle of localism. You fight problems in your own neighborhood. We'll look at these. The first principle is that of crushing the head. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that the head of the enemy is to be crushed. Since you use your foot to crush the head of the enemy, and since when you break the bones in his head, you might get a splinter in your foot, you're likely to receive a wound in your foot while you crush the head of the enemy. God's people are seen throughout Scripture as those who have their feet wounded. The enemies of God are seen as those who have their heads crushed. That means that God's people always limp through history. There's an apparent weakness in the church. It seems as if, imagine that we have a battalion of Christians out here, and they all have foot wounds, bleeding, bandaged, terribly painful, and you try to make that battalion of Christian men uh, march in parade formation. Well, you don't get a very good march, and that's what the church looks like. Now you've got a whole army out here of non-Christians. Their feet are in great shape. Somehow or other, they've all formed up in rank. But we're looking around for the commander, and they don't have a commander because their heads, commander's head's been crushed. They have no head. Now, which army is stronger? See, the reason that we are destined to win is because even though we suffer from a foot wound and it appears that we're weak, they don't have any head. Their head's been crushed. And when the Bible talks about crushing of the head, it means political head of the body politic. We speak of the body politic, and, and to us, that's just kind of a bare metaphor. But in the ancient world, it was a much more powerful metaphor. They actually saw society as an organism, and the political head was just like the head on a body. The Bible holds the leaders of society primarily responsible for social decisions. The Bible is not a democratic document. The history of Israel is not a history of people decisions made by the masses of people, reformations from the bottom up, apostasies from the bottom up. The history is rather that Adam, the head, falls, and that flows down. David makes decisions, and that flows down. Solomon makes decisions, and that flows down. Jeroboam makes a decision and causes Israel to sin. That's the refrain. The sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who brought the whole nation Israel into sin. 
this is not the popular American view, but it is that the fish rots from the head, society runs from the head down. Of course, there's feedback from the bottom up. Of course, there are social movements. And in a sense, I think we have to say, God being one in three, that society as a whole moves into sin or into righteousness at the same time. You don't have anomalous situations where you have righteous rulers and wicked people or righteous people and wicked rulers. That is a very temporary thing whenever that shows up in history. Rather, you have people and kings going into righteousness or people and kings declining into sin. But the way it always goes is that the heads seem to lead society, and that's why they're called leaders, and that's what our federal theology teaches us, that social influence flows from the head down. And thus, the leaders of society, the heads of society, are primarily responsible for social decisions. As a result, the most important matter in victory over an invading army is the destruction of its leadership. And that means that the fundamental principle of biblical warfare is assassination. Now, let's just don't cringe from that. That's our fundamental principle of biblical warfare. It's throughout the Bible. Of course, the humanists don't like it. If we had sent somebody in to assassinate the Ayatollah Khomeini, and each of his successors in turn, oh, there would have been this big hue and cry. But we are Christians, not humanists. And assassination is a fundamental principle of biblical warfare. This is seen particularly in the book of Judges, where in each case it is the heads of state which are the primary target of the battle. For when the leader dies, the army scatters. When the shepherd is smitten, the sheep scatter. Basic principle. So, Ehud assassinated Eglon. And once Eglon was killed, the Moabites ran away. Jael killed Sisera. Gideon slew Zeba, Zalmanah, Orab, and Zeb. Samson killed all five of the lords of the Philistines. Remember when the temple was brought down? All five of the lords of the Philistine pentapolis were there. Also, all the leaders of the Philistine religion. And the temple was temple was pulled down and all those stones fall down and crush the heads of the Philistine civilization. And of course, just a few weeks later, Samuel, Samson's good buddy, who was born about the same year as Samson, Samson and Samuel were born virtually in the same year, he leads the Battle of Aphek and scores a tremendous victory against the Philistines, naturally. Naturally he does. All their heads, heads of their armies, heads of their city-states and everything else had just been killed. Now, God doesn't take it very kindly when you make war against poor, innocent <clears throat> foot soldiers. Of course, they're never quite that. But uh, comparatively, it's not foot soldiers who decide to start wars. It wasn't the North Vietnamese teenagers aged 13, 14 who decided to march into South Vietnam and cause trouble. It was Ho Chi Minh who decided to enlist 14 and 15-year-old children and send them into South Vietnam. Who did we go in there to kill? We went in there to kill 14 and 15-year-old children. Why didn't we just send a crack team in to assassinate Ho Chi Minh and each one of his successors in turn until they quit? Simple way to end the war. Doesn't cost very much. Not very much bloodshed. You punish the responsible party. But we went in and made war on teenagers. And of course, after a while, when you're serving in the U.S. Army, you get tired of shooting children. Look what that did to our society. Guys who come home with nightmares, they don't like shooting children. 
They blow up a whole bunch of Vietnamese, and they go out there, and they find their 12- and 13-year-old girls out there. They just blew them away. What's that do to your conscience? You're an American. You've been drafted and sent over there, too. Why are we fighting them? Well, and we'll say a few more things about that. You see, it matters how you prosecute the war. And God, uh, God, this is not neutral. Let's look at 1 Samuel 15. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 15, we'll read it all. I'm going to read two whole chapters to show you how seriously God takes this principle. You don't, uh, you don't make war on people first and foremost. First and foremost, you kill the people who start wars. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now that's the beginning of this chapter, and it's the end of it, where God pulls all the oil off the head of Saul. And in the very next chapter, the first words are, How long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king? Fill your horn with oil and go and anoint the son of Jesse. So this is a big test case for Saul here. Okay, Saul, I've made you king, now I'm going to test you. If you fail, you're out. Now, it's the overall theological canon that we want to look at, but let's look at the details, too. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This is your test. Thus says the Lord of armies. Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. Got two hosts, angel hosts, human hosts. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. And utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay, so the time is right for Amalek to be destroyed. This is the flood. Everything is going to be wiped out that belongs to Amalek. So in this case, it's not just the head of the government that's to be killed, but everybody. Now, you know the story, but let's just read it and get it before us. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. That is, he enrolled them took the census of the uh, mustering money from them. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Interesting principle of warfare here. The offer of peace. Remember I told you that one of the five principles was an offer of peace. You try to offer peace to anybody you can. So here. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. These are all the places that are right outside the Garden of Eden, remember? And he captured Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, but utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, fatling, and lambs, and all that were good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, <coughs> but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, I can understand sparing the sheep, oxen, fatling, and lambs, and all that was good, you know, I mean, tendency to aggrandize yourself from the battle. It was wrong, but I can understand it. But why spare Agag? Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. That's the Garden of Eden. Carmel means garden, and so well, things that go on in Carmel, we're supposed to think back to the Garden of Eden. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. <laughs> That's what man would like to do in the garden. And then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. 
Remember Gilgal? That's where they had the hill of foreskins. When they came into the land, they circumcised everybody at Gilgal. Gilgal means rolling, rolling, because when you circumcise, you roll it off. That's how they use the knife in the process. So, Gilgal, rolling, rolling, the place where the covenant was made, Saul went down there. Saul's doing everything wrong. You know, he sets up a, a statue to himself in Carmel. Now he's gone down to the, the place where the covenant was made in the land and where God told them to go conquer the land and kill all the Canaanites or drive them out. Holy war was declared. That's an association that you have with Gilgal, especially if you're a Jew. I mean, all your life you've always been told about Gilgal and what went on there. So this is all kind of pregnant with meaning here. These aren't neutral sites. Samuel said to Saul, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen which I hear? Here you are at Gilgal. What's wrong with you? This is the place where the covenant was made. This is where your holy war was declared. This is where you came into the land and God gave you a foot wound, quote-unquote, and made you sore for three or four days, and you were nervous because... The people in Jericho and everybody else could have really wiped you out if they'd attacked you right during those few days. But the Lord spared you and protected you. He sent you in to destroy Jericho. And now what have you done? You're right here. Don't you have any covenant memory at all? What's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Ah, piety strikes again. This is our modern piety. Yes, we're going to uh, sacrifice to the Lord. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Bad theology here, utterly destroying. See, this. notice how it comes through here. You are to utterly destroy them. They utterly destroyed them. That's a word in Hebrew that, is, is, that means the same thing as sacrifice. It's cherem or hormah. And uh, to, put, to put them all to death is to sacrifice them. But, see, if they were really interested in sacrificing, they, they would have already done it. Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. This is missionary work here. And said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, who fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission, went to the mission field to which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. This is all people's fault here. And Samuel said, notice this is your, your good American democratic theology, that the people made this decision. This is, you know, the people. Samuel said, As the Lord is much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is just like the sin of witchcraft, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from the kingship. Then Saul said to Samuel, Oh dear, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Oh, it's the people's fault. This is a democracy. I had to do what the people said. 
Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the wing of his robe and it tore. Remember, that's the corner where the blue tassel was. It's called a wing. And he grabbed it. David's going to cut this off of Saul's robe later on. This keeps coming up here. But it's, it signifies the four corners of the earth are the four wings of the cherubim, the four blue tassels on the corners of the robe, the extent of a man's personal dominion. And in Saul's case, it's his dominion over the four corners of the land. And in Samuel's case, to tear that wing is, to a, is a symbol of attacking the propriety of the Lord. And so Samuel says to him, turning the parable on him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. You've lost a corner, and that's just a token of the fact that you're going to lose the whole thing. The first fruits of your loss of dominion. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Interesting that God is referred to here as the glory. Because the glory cloud around the throne of God is the extent of God's dominion. And all these four-cornered things on the earth are just earthly models of the dominion of God, which is around himself. Four cherubim around his throne, and that dominion which goes out to the four corners of infinity. Okay? And so God says, I maintain my kingdom and my dominion, and uh, I'm taking it from you. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Interesting uh, that Samuel agrees to this. In other words, Samuel is not a Donatist. The office of king needs to be maintained, even though the clod who wears the crown has been rejected. And so publicly, this is a private conversation, but publicly Samuel continues to affirm the king in his office. Just as if our leaders in our government do bad things, but we still respect the office of the president even if we don't respect Gemma or Rana or whoever's in office. We may not respect him as a man, but we respect the office. So here it is here too. Then verse 32. Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him uh, cheerfully it says here, and then in the margin it says, In bonds, take your pick. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. <clears throat> Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel chopped Agag to bits before the Lord at Gilgal. There's a reason for that. <laughs> Circumcision is... Uh, this adult Sunday school class here. Circumcision is castration that doesn't really castrate. So it's just like baptism is a drowning which doesn't really drown you. You got a choice. You either get drowned in the flood or you get sprinkled in baptism. You got a choice with circumcision too. You either get emasculated or you get circumcised. Nobody gets out without having something done to them. Paul in the New Testament says with regard to the Pharisees, I wish they would go all the way and castrate themselves, since they want to circumcise all you. In another passage, he says, I wish they would go all the way and chop themselves up. And that's why this is put here this way. Uh, 
that Agag, being outside the covenant, he receives the big circumcision. He's chopped up to pieces. God's people receive only the token of it, circumcision itself. It's as if uh, he was drowned instead of being sprinkled. All right. That's how God takes seriously this principle of crushing the head. Saul had this mentality that Agag was fellow royalty. And so, well, we fight this big battle, but now the battle's over. Let's, let's sit down with the uh, other commanders and the other kings, and we'll, uh, they're good buddies of ours. Now that the battle's over, and the champions have killed themselves, and mothers are weeping all over the battlefield, while well, we'll just have a parley here and decide who's going to take what home. Settle it out. Well, that's not permitted. Let's look at the other big example of this in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings chapter 20. First Kings chapter 20. Now Ben-Hadad, I mean Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army, and there were 32 vassals with him and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria, that's the capital of northern Israel, and fought against it. Then he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, and your most beautiful wives are mine, and your children are mine. In other words, you're not going to get to build up this new army you want to build up, which is what's going on here. I'm going to take all your gold and silver, and I'm going to put up pavilions on top of your house and go into your wives, just like Absalom did to David, and publicly humiliate you before the entire world. And I'm going to take your children back, and I'm going to put them in the public schools of Damascus, and I'm going to raise them up to be good Syrians, just as Daniel's and the other children of Israel were taken by Nebuchadnezzar back to be raised in Nebuchadnezzar's public schools. That's what's going on here. The children are mine. I'm going to take them back and educate them in my ideas and not in this covenant garbage that you guys have over in Israel. Then the king of Israel answered and said, Whatever you say, it's according to your word, my lord, O king. I'm yours and all that I have. Then the messengers returned and said, Ben-Hadad, of course, likes this. Uh, he thinks, well, maybe I can get a little bit more. Surely I said to you, saying you will give me your silver, your gold, and your wives and your children, but about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and it will come about that whatever they like, they'll take in their hand and carry it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Look how this man is looking for trouble. He sent to me for my wives and children and silver and gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Uh, you see, when he says, I'm going to go into your house and look through, what he's saying is, I'm going to destroy the whole city. So you can't buy me off. You tried to buy me off with this bribe here, but that isn't going to work. I'm going to come in and destroy the city. So the elders decide, well, if he's going to come in and destroy the city anyway, we might as well fight. We've got nothing to lose. It's all lost anyway if we don't. So, verse 9, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for your servant at the first will do, but this thing I cannot do. The messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. I've got an army that's like the sand of the sea, like the dust of the ground. That points to the curse, but it's also interesting that Abrahamic promise was that God's people would be 
like the sand of the sea for multitude. So now we're going to see whose sand is the more powerful. Then the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Uh, Ahab actually scores one verbal victory here with this saying. And it came about when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with his kings in the tents. He said to his servants, Take your stands. So they took a stand against the city. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, You see this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, God did not care a whole lot for Ahab at this stage in history. God is not going to do this because Ahab is a good guy or northern Israel is a good nation. He's going to do it for his name's sake. You will know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, Who will you deliver me by? And God said, the prophet said, Thus says the Lord, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. And he said, Who will begin the battle? And he said, You. You go on the attack. Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232. Dave Chilton will uh, later on tell us the symbolic significance of this number. And after them he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. That's not so hard to figure out. And they, were, they went out at noon when Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booth with the 32 kings who helped him. And the young men of the rulers of the provinces went out first. Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, Men have come out from Samaria. And he said, If they've come out for peace, take them alive. In other words, we'll just incorporate them into the nation here, make them vassals. If they've come out for war, take them alive. Either way. We want, the, we want these men because uh, Ben-Hadad wasn't going to stop with Jerusalem. See, he was going to go on and conquer the world if he could. So the more people he could incorporate into his army, the better. That's why he wanted Ahab's gold and silver. So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces and the army which followed them. They killed each his men. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, king of, the, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Then the prophet came near the king of Israel and said, Go strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. Now the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are mountain gods. They've got their God's mountain God. He gave him a law on Mount Sinai. He's got a temple at Mount Jerusalem. And uh, they've got all these Israelites. They're always sacrificing their children on high places. I mean, Israel's God is a mountain God. So you can't fight him in the mountains. That's why they were stronger than we are. But rather let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. They said, look, you know Israelite history... The Jews were not allowed to have chariots. They're no good at warfare on the plains. They're good at mountain warfare. They've got guys who sling stones. All kinds of things that are real good at mountain warfare, but when it comes to fighting on the plains, you don't have horses and chariots. You can forget about winning any battles that take place on the plains. Of course, I imagine Ahab probably did have horses and chariots, even though he wasn't supposed to. But you know a little Israelite history, and you understand that their God claims mountain turf as his, and uh, he's not much good in the plains. Do this thing. Remove these kings, 
the 32 kings, remember the 32 kings that were there with Ben-Hadad? It's not your fault that you lost the battle. These kings aren't any good. Get, Get rid of them and replace them with professional military men. Let's get the McNamaras out. Let's get the generals back in. Now, that's not a bad idea in general. And muster an army just like the army you lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them on the plain with real generals in charge. No more of these civilians. And surely we'll be stronger than they. And they listened to their voice and did so. He listened to their voice and did so. And it came about at the turn of the year. The Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The sons of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went to meet them. This mustering means that this is the draft. They drafted everybody in. We'll be looking at this principle later on. You draft everybody. And then you say, anybody who just got married can go home. Anybody who just bought land can go home. Anybody who's scared to fight can go home. You've paid your mustering tax, your half shekel, but you can go home. But everybody that's left is not afraid. You're in the army. So they mustered them up and provisioned them and went to meet them. The sons of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats. You see, everybody who was scared to fight could go home, so there weren't a whole lot left. Two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. It's like Zulu, you know. You look out, all you see are people. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but not a God of the valleys. Behold, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you will know that I am the Lord. So they camped one over against the other for seven days, and it came about on the seventh day, naturally. The battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. And the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. And his servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Remember when you said, Give me your wives and your children and your gold and silver, and he said, Sure, you can have them. We figure that this guy is soft. He's, he does, he's been making alliances with everybody because Ahab didn't trust the Lord, so he was always looking for political alliances. So uh, we've heard that he's soft. Let's put on sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel and perhaps he will save your life. Or to put it into modern English, let's put a noose around our neck and we'll go out there with this noose. And then what we're saying is, okay, Ahab, you can tighten it up and string us up but we just give ourselves into your hand. <clears throat> so they girded sackcloth on their loins and put uh, a noose on their necks and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. It's to your advantage. And he said, Is he still alive? Why, he's my brother. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. <coughs> the men took this as an omen. And quickly catching his words, said, Your brother Ben-Hadad, yes, brother Ben-Hadad is alive, yes. Yeah, brother. Brother Ben-Hadad. Yeah, brother. Brother, brother, brother. Right, brother? You got it, brother. Brother Ben-Hadad, brother. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he took him up into his chariot. 
Well, that would have a double meaning. You know, you're going to get into the chariot and talk and everything, but that's kind of like exalting somebody, too. Sure, come on up in my chariot, brother. How's it going, brother? How's the Lord treating you today, brother? So, I mean, all this brother talk, which is okay with us, but not with Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father, I will give back to you. And you will make streets for yourself in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Made covenant with the enemies of God. Now, what's this business about making streets? Well, you've got to think back in the ancient world. Or Philadelphia. You go out into South Philadelphia in the Italian section, and there's all these fruit and vegetable stands out there on the street. You go into ancient world, and there are bazaars. Okay? All these little tents along the street, and it's a bazaar. And uh, in the ancient world and in the medieval world, different nations would have different sections of a city, which would be their section. That's what the word ghetto means. The word ghetto does not mean something bad. In any European city, in the Middle Ages or in the Renaissance, there were ghettos. In a, in a city in Paris, there might be a Polish ghetto, a Jewish ghetto. Well, that would be if you were Polish, you went, you, you lived in the Polish ghetto. Everybody spoke Polish there. Uh, the, the church was kind of Polish there. The, it would be a Polish bazaar there. If you wanted to buy some Polish food and you lived in Paris, you went over there into the Polish ghetto and you shopped at the Polish bazaar. Or if you wanted Jewish food, you went to the Jewish ghetto and shopped at the Jewish bazaar. Now, what's happened in the past here is that some earlier Ben-Hadad or some earlier king uh, of Damascus and Syria has forced uh, Ahab to give bazaar space for him. Most favored nation trade status. And that means instead of charging rent for the street or for the bazaar or taxing them for the privilege of having their own quarter where they sell their stuff, it was given free. And possibly other people were taxed in order to put them in a disadvantage. You see, when you conquer somebody, you colonialize them, and that means that you get to take what you want, and they pay you high prices, and other people are taxed out of the market, and you have this real nice colonial relationship with them, or neo-colonial relationship with them. And that's what went on here. And so he's saying, look, we'll just reverse the situation here, I'll give you a tax-free, duty-free bazaar in the middle of the city, of my city, and, uh, oh, probably I'll discriminate against everybody else and you can make money. So Ahab said, that's great, and I made a covenant with him. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of the Lord. you got two prophets standing here, and one prophet says to the other, please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. And he said, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. Now what's going on here? Okay. My friend is standing here, and he says to me, Hit me in the face. And I said, no, I don't want to hit you in the face. And he says, no, the Lord says, you must hit me in the face. You must strike me. And I say, no, I won't. 
He says, okay, but because you didn't strike me, as soon as you go out of here, a lion's going to eat you up. Now let's decipher that. God says to Ahab, I want you to kill Ben-Hadad. Ahab says, no, I don't want to do it. And the Lord says, now wait a minute, I am the Lord, I'm telling you, even though you've been friends with him in the past, even though if you think you're a friend of his, I still insist that you kill him. And Ahab says, no, and God says, okay, but as soon as you leave here, the lion of Assyria, Assyria, is going to attack and destroy you. Because Assyria was the big threat on the horizon. Not Damascus and Syria, but Nineveh and Assyria. As soon as you leave, the lion of Assyria is going to kill you. So the prophet found another man, verse 37. This is the, now we'll see this parable acted out. And said, please strike me. And of course, this guy, having seen what happened uh, just a moment ago, was ready to strike him and wound him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a man turned aside and brought to me a man and said, Guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you will pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized that he was one of the sons of the prophets. See, kind of revealed his collar he had on his neck. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand, hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. Okay, now let's, what is this parable here? This is like Nathan coming to David with a story, the same thing happens here. The prophet says, tells him this story, he says, I went out in the battle and a man turned aside and brought somebody to me and said, guard this man, if he's missing, then your life is forfeited. And your servant was busy here and there, and the man was gone. I was supposed to guard him, and I let him go. And that's what you've done. God gave you Ben-Hadad, and God said, kill this dude. But you didn't do it. You let him go. And so, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. <clears throat> in other words, God insists that the head be crushed. Prophet has a head wound. He says, look, you know, this is, this is what you're supposed to have here. Bandage on the head. You're supposed to deliver a head wound to Ben-Hadad, and you didn't do it. You wanted an alliance with him at any price because you were afraid of Assyria. You're afraid of the Assyrians who are out there massing their armies. And it's good reason to be afraid of the Assyrians. What the Assyri Assyrians used to do when they conquered a city was get all the men out of the city, and then they would flay them. That is, they would take all their skin off while they were still alive, stick a knife under and work the skin off. Then they would tack the skins on the walls of the city, and they would write on the walls, 
This is what the Assyrians do to people who resist them. So everybody who passed by would figure we won't resist the Assyrians. So Ahab was worried about the Assyrians and he said, you know, I've got to have an alliance with Ben-Hadad here. I'll give him almost anything for this alliance. God said, okay, you've got your alliance, but as soon as you go out, the Assyrians are going to kill you because you didn't trust in me. You trusted in your political alliances with heathens. Okay, there are a lot of things there for us to think about, and that's why we read the whole story instead of just alluding to it. But the bottom line I want to get at today is God insists that the Ho Chi Minh's, the Adolf Hitler's, the Idiom Means of this world are the ones you make war against. You don't just go out and fight their armies, and if you can, you just assassinate the leaders. It's the leaders who are responsible. They are the ones who need to be destroyed. This business of fellow royalty, my brother, that's no good. That's, of course, the European and American tradition to view the people basically as the enemies and uh, other members of other royal houses as somehow or other people to be respected. That is not the perspective of Scripture. And we can apply that very easily, you see, to some of the conflicts that we have been involved in especially Vietnam. Fight to win, or are you just fooling around destroying millions of people and still for no particular purpose? Well, let's stand and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spared us, that you crowned our Lord Jesus Christ's head with thorns and delivered to him the head wound that we deserve. We thank you that we have new life in him. We also pray for our nation, Father, that you would deliver us from the hand of those who would attack us from without and that you would grant reformation and reconstruction to our country. Help us as a nation to learn your word and your truth and once again to apply proper biblical rules for warfare as in every other area of life. We ask particularly this morning, Father, about Dr. Lester and his performing of abortions here in town. We ask that you would swiftly disgrace and destroy his work here, that he might be made a public shame and example, and that others would fear to engage in the same practice in our city. We pray this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.